Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Leah Walsh, and this is Rosette, the podcast. Hey folks, it's Leah here, and thank you for joining us today. This is Rosette the Podcast. I'm sure you know if you've clicked on the podcast, but uh, I'm really happy you're joining me today for the eighth principle of fair trade that we're going to be talking about. Uh, this is the eighth part in a 10-part series on the 10 principles of fair trade that I'm doing for Fair Trade Month on Rosette the Podcast. And today's principle, principle eight, is providing capacity building. And this is a really fun principle. It's one where we're talking about basically reducing how much uh, these producers have to rely on others to uh, add value along the the supply chain. And so it's really great because it helps them to earn a better income. It helps them to be a little bit more independent and it also helps them grow their business. So whether that be adding on additional farmers to the cooperative, whether it be, um, you know, increasing their yield when they're harvesting, any number of things, all of these things fall under capacity building. So I'm going to talk about that really quick. Now, before I get too much into it, I want to remind everyone about the exciting announcement at the end of last episode, which is that we're doing a Equifruit challenge right now on Instagram. So you want to check that out. I think it's also on Facebook actually too. So you'll want to check that out because everyone who is um, taking the Equifruit pledge will get a, a coupon for their next order at Rosette Fairtrade. So if you were thinking about checking out something on the website, make sure that you check out the socials first and um, see how you can get a coupon for that. And we're really excited for, um, you know, getting a little bit more visibility also for Equifruit because as I'm sure you heard in the last episode, they're doing a lot of really, really great work. And uh, we're really excited to partner with them. So without further ado, (laughs) um, let's get into the eighth principle. And that is providing capacity building. What comes to mind first, when we talk about capacity building, is something actually that Julie Francoeur said in our interview, where we were talking about um, development and what that looks like and perhaps what that should not look like um, and perhaps how we should move away from certain types of development. And I think capacity building is really beautiful because it's sort of along the lines of um, self-empowerment and allowing folks to sort of rely on themselves instead of having to have some savior come in and help them. Uh, So I think part of why I love this principle so much is because it really moves away from this kind of like charity model. And it really goes more towards just making sure that folks have resources to empower themselves and to have that kind of independence and that kind of you know, initiative that people sort of naturally have when they're not constantly thwarted at every turn and sort of taking things out of the way and letting people just like move forward and thrive. And so capacity building is really, really an an interesting principle for that reason. And so capacity building means that you're basically increasing what people are capable of. That's like a basic definition, you know, capacity is just like, what are you able to do? And building it up is so just growing it. And so if, for example, um, you start a job and you know how to, I don't know, like 
send emails, but then like later on you learn how to like give presentations and maybe like you know how to train employees and and do like payroll and stuff. That all of that has built your capacity. Your capacity started with being able to do basic stuff like correspondence and now you're able to basically make sure people get their paychecks at the end of the week. So your capacity has has been built up a lot over that time. It's the same kind of thing we're talking about in fair trade. And so capacity building can look a lot of different ways. But the idea is that there needs to be some kind of focus on producers being able to have some like self-determination, you know, like decide like where their own lives are going to be going in terms of like their business and how it grows and how it changes over time and all of those things. So one of the really great things is that they do have this great network of if you're in a cooperative, you're going to have other farmers that are part of your network now that perhaps you didn't before. And that in and of itself can increase your capabilities. Because for example, if you're on your own and you need to invest in something, you may not be able to afford it. But now you've got several other farmers, you can pool your resources, you can probably afford things to share that you wouldn't have been able to afford on your own. And all of those different things, whether it be financial, it could be information sharing. Maybe this guy over here knows how to rotate crops in ways that you don't and he gets a better yield because of it. Um, It could be any number of things. So when you're talking about capacity building, it's not only from the system itself of fair trade, but also sort of in a collateral way or like a sort of almost accidental way that happens totally naturally when you see that farmers are going from being isolated smallholder farmers to being part of a broader farmer community. So that happens tons. And one of the other ways that it happens is that you have now this international organization. So whether it be Fairtrade International, whether it be the Fairtrade Federation, whatever it may be, the important thing to remember is that these organizations are really international in nature and they have a ton of connections and they're really bringing people together. And so in terms of information sharing, that is really a wealth of resources. You're able to then access that information. There's tons and tons of programs, for example, for producers who are spending a lot of money on like fertilizer and stuff to actually uh, train producers on composting. So that compost then can be used back on their soil and they don't have to invest so much money in fertilizer. That's actually a really common training that happens with newer producers who are entering fair trade who maybe haven't uh, learned that before and they weren't familiar with that process. Now they're able to create their own fertilizer out of compost. They're able to put that back into their soil and enrich it and they can they can use that to to grow beautiful produce for the next season. All of this stuff is available now because they're part of a broader system. The other thing is that because capacity building is so important within fair trade, when you have a fair trade partner, such as a buyer, then that buyer is expected to support initiatives that the producers are are engaging with to grow what they're able to do on site or like within their own organization. So for example, one of the best examples I can think of is some years ago now, Camino was working with a sugar producer that um, I believe it was Manduvera's is um, the one that uh, this happened with. They had been working with Camino for some time and they had said, well, the thing is that um, because we grow the sugar cane, but we're like we're smallholders and stuff, we aren't like we're not millers, like we don't have like a mill. So we have to basically load the sugar cane onto a back of a truck, drive it up the hill to the guy who's got the mill. 
and that guy mills the sugar cane or like presses it and and so on. And he like does all of that stuff. And when it comes back to us, it's sugar. But of course, he's done that part of the process. So then we have to pay him to do that. And what would be really great is if we had our own mill <laughs> and we didn't have to load it on a truck, send it up the hill and pay a man to do it. And all of that money could stay right here in the producer community. So what happened over time, and I don't know that, you know, obviously I'm not like on the board for Camino <laughs> or like whatever. So I don't know like exactly the details of how this happened. But over time, we saw that the producers were able to take money and put it towards building a mill. And now they're just, they're hugely independent. And they now have, like, they have organic certification as well. And they are able to mill their sugar. They don't have to pay another person to do it. And based on their website, it looks like they're actually milling other people's sugar too for them who don't have access to to another mill or what have you, or like their own mill. So it's just like a massive difference now because all of that sugar then arrives in the seller's country, like in Canada, and it's already done. You know, they're able to do all of that stuff. They're able to keep all of that value add in the community instead of, say, sending raw sugar cane up the hill. They pay that guy. Well, now they have sugar. Now they have to send it elsewhere to get packaged or what have you. They can do all of that now in the actual cooperative. And so that producer organization can keep all of the money associated with all of those steps. A similar example, a colleague of mine some years ago was visiting a banana producer in Peru. And what they used to do is they would take the... So so bananas are so funny. They actually grow... If you've never seen how bananas grow, you should really look up pictures of, of banana trees. Or, or Well, they're not actually trees. They're kind of like... I don't know. It's hard to explain, but they're like, they're actually technically bananas are, are a grass or something or a herb. Or I can't remember what it is, but it's actually not technically a tree or a bush. But they're this funny looking like kind of slender, short thing. <laughs> and the bananas grow upside down on the top, kind of. It, they almost look like the head of um the best thing I can think of to describe it is they look like the head of an asparagus kind of like they grow like that sort of in like layers and they're like kind of like grooves or whatever but they're upside down and so it's kind of funny looking and so what you do is you take basically the whole like group or cluster I guess of bananas off of the tree and then you've got like basically this asparagus head with like you know six rows of of bananas in like circles around the trunk of this plant and you're you're lugging you know 100 pounds of bananas or something on your shoulder and there's actually photos of you know they they get you know strong people with like they'll put this is how they do it in fair trade spots i don't know how they do it elsewhere but they'll put like a a pad almost like um it almost looks like what you put on a patio chair to make it padded they'll put a pad on their shoulder so that they're not hurting their shoulder too much with these bananas and then they'll sling it on their shoulder and they'll just sort of carry these bananas and they're like it's like 100 pounds of bananas it's like a lot of bananas and then they'll bring it to cart or something they can't be just, just doing it all on foot but anyway um but they'll bring it and they'll and they'll process these bananas Well, the thing is, if you're a really small producer, you may have lots of banana trees, we'll call them, uh, banana plants. Um, You may have people who can like, you know, cut down the bananas and so on. But you may not necessarily be equipped with like a facility to like actually process the bananas. So what happens is that they come off the tree and there's like, there's got to be hundreds of bananas on one of these clusters. So you have to then like, 
you have to make sure also they're they're going to be covered in like bugs and dirt and stuff like that. You have to wash the bananas. And then you have to also make sure that the bananas are like separated from the plant or from the cluster or what have you. And that often is like a process where you have to then take them layer by layer and then you cut each, you know, ring of bananas into several <laughs> bunches of bananas that look more like what we see. Um, often there's like a process where you put like a sticker on or what have you for whatever brand or or certification or whatever that you're that you're working with and ha- what have you. So there's a lot of different steps that we don't really think about between when the banana is actually on the plant to when the banana even goes into a box to be shipped to wherever it's going. And so the thing is, if you're a small banana producer, you may not have a facility where all those steps can take place. And so my colleague, he had been in this in this um, organization where there were all these banana growers and they had actually over time and by, again, pooling resources, they had been able to create a place where they can actually do all of that process. So they can wash the bananas, they can separate the bananas, cut them into bunches and apply stickers and so on, put them in boxes. They have like, um, they need, I don't know if you've ever seen bananas in a box because oftentimes they're just sitting on the shelf when you go in the grocery, but they have to have like sort of this like padding layer between or else, of course, bananas bruise really easily. And so they will, you know, put the bananas and then a layer of the padding and the bananas and so on. And they'll they'll box up the bananas and they'll seal up the bananas and they'll ship the bananas. And it all it all happens right in that organization. So that means that instead of only getting payment for the first step where they have the banana on the tree, they now get payment for this step where once it comes off the tree, they get paid to wash it, prepare it separate it into bunches, put the labels on, put it in the boxes, and also ship it directly to the buyer. So all of that money, everything up to and including the part where it leaves the country, all of that money is staying in that cooperative. And that is just miles away from that first step where you get paid just to to grow the banana and take it down off the tree. So these types of, of growths, I guess, or these these advances, I guess, in a business are really positive for the producers because now we have a producer who started out making money on maybe one or two steps of the process. Now they're making basically three, four times the money because they're able to do it pretty much start to finish and send the completed product right to their buyer. That's really great because then they can invest in the things that are important to them in the community. If they want to, you know, invest in their kids' education, if they want to, you know, use that extra money to like do trainings, if they want, you know, they can, they can, that extra income is so important and it, it really allows them to sort of reinvest in their business. So without like, you know, under appreciating the importance of capacity building, I also don't think that it's a super complex idea. So I think like, you know, that is a good enough explanation in my in my view of like what capacity building looks like within fair trade or approximately anyway. Um, but anyone who has, you know, thoughts about it, um, do write in and let us know um, if you wanted to give any examples or if you have like, um, or if, if I got something wrong. <laughs> I do sometimes get stuff wrong. But these these examples, I'm fairly sure I did an okay job explaining because there were actually examples that were explained to me in person. Um, But capacity building, because it is such an important part of sort of that trade, not charity kind of model, it's it's really close to my heart. So um, 
thank you for joining me for this particular episode. That's it's it's one of my favorite principles to talk about. So in the next episode, we're going to be talking about the ninth principle, which is the second last principle in the series that we're really getting there. <laughs> so principle nine is promoting fair trade. So we'll talk about what that means and what that looks like within the fair trade movement. But until then, I really encourage you to once again, we're talking about bananas again, but I really encourage you to check out the socials. So it's at Rosette Network on Instagram. You can check out the the um, promo that we're doing with Equifruit and and otherwise, just like send us an email. Let us know what you're what you're thinking of the podcast. And absolutely do continue to go on to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. Um, and it really helps to kind of boost our visibility on the platform. So it's super, super appreciated uh, when you do that. It seems like a, like a small thing or like, I don't know, maybe it seems like a pain in the butt. I don't know. But um, apparently that's how the algorithm works is like how many reviews you have is how many people get to see your podcast. So when you have like, you know, my tiny little podcast over here and then you've got someone over here who's got like Amazon behind them, then it's kind of challenging to compete with that. So um, yeah, so I really appreciate everyone who's taken the time to do that. And uh, if you haven't yet, please do. It makes such a difference and I really, really appreciate it. So that's all for today. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. But uh, yeah, take care and bye-bye for now.